I'm back. Did you miss me? Welcome to the Weird History Podcast. I'm Joe Streckert. This podcast is independent and ad-free because of your listener support. Become a listener supporter by going to weirdhistorypodcast.com. Well, that was too long of a hiatus. Uh, happened for a number of reasons, uh, the biggest of which, and I don't want to talk about this too much on the podcast, uh, I transitioned to a new day job last month, and that was a whole thing. Uh, unfortunately, podcasting does not pay all of the bills. Wish it did. So, yes, I do have to go to a real-life adult job on a regular basis so I can, you know, pay rent and grocery bills and all of that business. Uh, but when it comes to professional podcasting, you might have noticed that the Patreon campaign for August uh, did not bill you. Patreon for this thing is done. We are transitioning to a membership model where you will support us directly and we will not have Patreon as an intermediary. That means more of your support will go directly to us, which is great. Uh, also, it means that members are going to get exclusive content. So we have already recorded a few members-only episodes, uh, and you will get access to those as soon as you sign up. Uh, membership will be monthly or annually, and think of it as like buying one of your favorite creators a beer every month, you know, which I think is a totally good and cromulent thing to do. But in the meantime, this has been a long time coming. Uh, here is part four, the conclusion of our Iran-Contra miniseries. Enjoy. Stay up with us now for a complete and uninterrupted rebroadcast of today's proceedings of the Iran-Contra hearings. On October 5th, 1986, CIA operative Eugene Hassenfuss's plane was shot down over Nicaragua. He grabbed his parachute, escaped out of a cargo hatch, and jumped to safety. His other three crewmates were not so lucky. They went down with the craft. When Hassenfuss landed, though, things got a little bit awkward. He was captured by Nicaraguan troops, and he suddenly had to account for why he, a CIA operative, was even in Nicaragua. Hassenfuss had been on a plane to deliver armaments and supplies to the Contras, and, officially, he wasn't supposed to be there. Neither were his former crewmates. Nicaraguan officials found documents on Hassenfuss and his erstwhile crewmates, and in the plane, linking the Contras to the U.S. government. Hassenfuss was captured by Nicaraguan authorities, charged with terrorism, conspiracy, and determining public security, and, for a while, was a prisoner of the Sandinistas, though they eventually let him go. Later, in November of 1986, an Iranian official, who had knowledge of dealings with the U.S., with missile sales, and all of that, opened his mouth to a Lebanese magazine and started talking about how they had been buying missiles from the United States and trading them for prisoners, and how interesting an experience that was. 
some conspiracies are too big to keep quiet, especially conspiracies that span the globe and have a lot of moving parts. And when your secret plan involves people in Central America, in North America, in Europe, in Iran, and has all kinds of money moving around, all kinds of missiles and people moving around, and all kinds of folks who could talk, and all kinds of things that can go wrong, it's not going to stay secret for very long. By the end of 1986, pretty much everyone paying attention to current events and geopolitics knew that something was up. The U.S. was involved in Nicaragua. They were selling weapons to Iran. It had something to do with hostages. There was something inside the Reagan administration orchestrating all of it. In November of 1986, Edwin Meese, the U.S. Attorney General at the time, disclosed to the public that, yes, government money had gone to the Contras, contrary to what American law said at the time. The Reagan administration, which was, of course, the driving force behind everything that was going on, needed to do some damage control. Reagan fired Oliver North, who, anyone paying attention, realized was pretty important to Iran-Contra. Later that month, Reagan appointed a commission called the Tower Commission. It was headed up by John Tower, a senator from Texas, to investigate arms sales to Iran. The Tower Commission didn't have a lot of time to do their work. They were assembled very late in 1986, and they were expected to deliver their report by February of 1987. At first glance, the Tower Commission's findings looked kind of bad for the Reagan administration. They said yes, the U.S. government had indeed been funding and supporting the Contras. They had been selling weapons to Iran. They had been using Israel as an intermediary. And this was contrary to stated U.S. foreign policy, and also against U.S. law at the time. However, despite those fairly substantive findings, they didn't really hold anyone all that accountable for what had happened. They basically said that the Reagan administration had a lax managerial style, and there was a certain aloofness from the higher-ups about what was going on on a day-to-day -day basis. So basically, there were some guys in a White House basement who decided to be cowboys and go move a bunch of money and missiles around and fund right-wing militias in Central America, and really the higher-ups should have been paying more attention. Now, the Reagan administration probably wished it all ended then and there. In March of 1987, Reagan went on television to address the nation. He said, quote, I take full responsibility for my own actions and for those of my administration. As angry as I may be about activities undertaken without my knowledge, I am still accountable for those activities. As disappointed as I may be in some who served me, I am still the one who must answer to the American people for this behavior. Unquote. Now, on the surface, that sounds like a great apology, taking responsibility for the thing that happened. But it didn't come with anything like indictments, or prosecution, or resignations. Sure, he had fired Oliver North, but it's got to be more than that, right? Well, the Tower Commission, in Reagan's statement, 
was not enough for Congress. Also in March of 1987, Henry Gonzalez, a Texas Democrat, introduced articles of impeachment against Ronald Reagan. Those did not go anywhere. Also, Congress kicked off a series of hearings that would consume most of 1987 and very much went somewhere. These hearings were the big media event of that year, and they went into far more details than the Tower Commission did. When a lot of people think of Iran-Contra, they think of these hearings. They are grueling to watch, by the way, and watching a whole lot of them is part of why this episode is so late. And they talked to basically everybody. They talked to Major General Richard Secord, who is co-founder of the Enterprise. They talked to Bud McFarlane, or Robert McFarlane, the guy that Oliver North worked with quite a bit. They talked to Fawn Hall, Oliver North's secretary. They talked to Casper Weinberger, the Secretary of State, Edwin Meese, the Attorney General, John Poindexter, a Vice Admiral and former National Security Advisor. They talked to so many major players in Iran-Contra, but it was Oliver North who was the star witness. See, a lot of the people that Congress talked to behaved in basically a normal way, giving their version of events, and when questioned, uh, you know, giving only the barest amount of information that they could get away with giving. Not North, though. North was combative. Instead of just putting his spin on events, or trying to get away with saying as little as possible, he went up there and made the case that he had nothing to apologize for. He made a robust case for why he was, in fact, in the right, and why he wasn't out of order. Congress was out of order. I'm going to play an audio clip for you, but it needs some setup. This is from a statement of North's during the hearings, and what you're going to hear comes about 10 minutes into what he has to say. Before he even gets to the Iran-Contra affair, he gives his background. He talks up his military service. He talks up his patriotism. He says how much he loves his family. He emphasizes how hard he works. He talks about working 14 hours a day for the United States of America. And then, after 10 minutes of burnishing all of his credentials, he says this. I worked hard on the political military strategy for restoring and sustaining democracy in Central America, and in particular, El Salvador. We sought to achieve the democratic outcome in Nicaragua that this administration still supports, which involved keeping the countries together in both body and soul. We made efforts to open a new relationship with Iran and recover our hostages. We worked on the development of a concerted policy regarding terrorists and terrorism and a, capable, and a capability for dealing in a concerted manner with that threat. So in that testimony right there, he is admitting to absolutely everything that he is accused of. But he's not saying that he did anything wrong. Instead, he's saying that he's upholding democracy, he's fighting communism, he's working for the president. And I didn't play you the whole intro that he had as his wind-up, but he said that what he did in Iran-Contra, or at least he implies that what he did in Iran-Contra, was consistent with his years of prior service that he is just continuing his job as an American serviceman, and he's continuing 
to fight for America's interests abroad. That is a fascinating defense. He's not saying, I didn't do it. He's saying, this is what's right. And he knows by activating the values of people watching, that's going to help him out politically. That's going to improve the optics for him and for Iran-Contra later on. Because as we'll see, all of this gets out in the open, but none of it matters. More on that later. Anyway, later on, Oliver North also says this. I believe that this is a strange process that you are putting me and others through. Apparently, the president has chosen not to assert his prerogatives, and you have been permitted to make the rules. You call before you the officials of the executive branch. You put them under oath for what must be collectively thousands of hours of testimony. You dissect that testimony to find inconsistencies and declare some to be truthful and others to be liars. You make the rulings as to what is proper and what is not proper. You put the testimony which you think is helpful to your goals up before the people and leave others out. It's sort of like a baseball game in which you are both the player and the umpire. It's a game in which you call the balls and strikes and where you determine who is out and who is safe. And in the end, you determine the score and declare yourselves the winner. That is not how one normally talks before a congressional committee. Congress has investigative powers. They can subpoena you. They can subpoena documents. They are allowed to find stuff out, which goes along with being a lawmaking body. One would expect that if somebody was going to make laws about stuff, they would need to get experts, get documents, get knowledge in general about that stuff. Also, the American branches of government are supposed to check and balance each other. That is a big part of, you know, America. Oliver North, however, says, how dare you? How dare you, the Article I branch of government, come in here and sit me down and sit down other members of the executive branch and make us answer questions and then come to a conclusion that you've already determined. That's some moxie. Like, don't really agree with the guy, but you gotta admit, he has chutzpah. And a lot of people found that extremely compelling. A lot of people watching said, yeah, they are the Spanish Inquisition. This is basically a star chamber situation. How dare they make that brave, noble American Marine Lieutenant Colonel sit down and answer their question and do this kind of show trial type thing. He was just trying to, like, do a democracy in Central America. But I'll remind you that Congress also has power over U.S. foreign policy. And with the Boland Amendments, they had said, you know what? These guys in Central America who are trying to bring down the Nicaraguan government? How about we don't give them guns and money? And the executive branch said, eh, whatever. We're going to do what we want. Anyway, that was the big standout of the Iran-Contra hearings. Also, there was this. I don't recall, and I don't really know whether... Uh, uh, 
such briefings were given to others like the Secretary of State or not who were going to be meeting with these people. I don't recall uh, seeing this and as I, I know that, uh, that my policy was not to, uh, to involve others in this. I mean, I wanted them involved, but I didn't want to be on record as doing it. Once again, I want to emphasize that scholars who have investigated this matter, most prominently Malcolm Byrne, author of Iran-Contra, Reagan's Scandal, The Unchecked Abuse of Presidential Power, which I am drawing on heavily for this series, uh, basically are settled on the conclusion that Reagan did know what was going on. And when given the option to choose that either he was doing something illegal or he was just bad at his job, he chose the optics of being bad at his job. And later on, because none of this really stuck, it didn't matter. But we'll get to that. After all these hearings, the bill did indeed come due. There were a slew of indictments, including Caspar Weinberger, the former Secretary of Defense, Robert McFarland, Bud McFarland, he was a National Security Advisor, and Oliver North's old work buddy, and eight other conspirators, most notably Oliver North. A little over a year later, in February of 1989, Oliver North went on trial. He wasn't found guilty of selling weapons to Iran specifically. Rather, he was found guilty of accepting illegal gratuities, obstructing a congressional inquiry, and destroying documents. He was sentenced to two years in prison, fined $150,000, and required to perform 1,200 hours of community service. And it really is North who took the fall for Iran-Contra, both literally by being found guilty and in a more elusive political sense, because most people now think of him as being the Iran-Contra guy. However, it was much bigger than him. Again, this went all the way up to cabinet-level officials and the president. However, from a certain point of view, North was a pretty good pick for being the face of selling arms to Iran. He played the role of mafia accountant and fixer during the Iran-Contra affair, making sure the money kept flowing, and donors knew how to support the Contras, and U.S. missiles got to the right place. However, he didn't look like a mafia accountant or a fixer-type guy. Appearing on TV in his Marine uniform, keeping his cool, lashing out at Congress and saying, how dare you obstruct us in our patriotic work, sporting graying temples that made him look fatherly and approachable and authoritative. He was the picture of respectability for a lot of Americans. And when he expressed aggression and umbrage, people watching found that to be justified. Even if it was conceivable for a lot of folks watching that he'd broken the law, it was inconceivable that he'd done anything wrong in a larger sense. North insisted that everything he'd done had been in the best interest of the U.S. and of democracy in general. Even as he was found guilty and sentenced to prison time, plenty of people took his side. The image and demeanor of Oliver North dulled the impact of the facts and the public's still extant anti-communism did a lot of work in clearing away potential political backlash for everything that had happened. Later on, George H.W. Bush would pardon six other co-conspirators, 
including former Secretary of Defense Caspar Weinberger. It was barely a scandal. It made only the slightest ripple in American political life when it happened. By the way, fun fact, one of the people who told George H.W. Bush to do that was a lawyer named William Barr. He is now America's Attorney General. Ultimately, Iran-Contra was a failure. The Sandinistas are still, to this day, in charge of the Nicaraguan government. And, unfortunately, it seems like Daniel Ortega, who's been president of Nicaragua for years, has picked up a few of the Somoza regime's old tricks. While Nicaragua is arguably better off than it was 30 years ago, it's not a democracy at all. And, in particular, the relationship between the Sandinista government and the indigenous population remains pretty bad. Now, we can't know if Nicaragua was doomed to fall into this kind of pattern just because of its own internal politics, or because of who the Sandinistas are, or the rest of it. But I strongly suspect that having to contend with a belligerent reactionary force funded by a foreign superpower probably wasn't good for Nicaraguan democracy. It doesn't take much for an otherwise idealistic revolutionary to turn into the establishment. And that's what happened with the Sandinistas. They went from being freedom fighters who wanted to overturn a regime, which was basically running Nicaragua like a family business, and turn it into something a bit more equitable. Instead, though, they are now putting down their own dissidents. And authoritarian governments, strongmen, and entrenched power thrive on having enemies. They thrive on emergencies. They thrive on crises. And by keeping the Contras going, the U.S. helped supply that government with a crisis and with a set of enemies that it could use and become more entrenched. Once again, it's impossible to know for sure what would have happened if the Contras were not a going concern throughout the end of the 70s and the 80s, but I strongly suspect that things would be different for the better. Iran-Contra also failed to improve U.S.-Iranian relations. Selling weapons to Iran did not empower moderate forces in that government, nor did it empower moderate forces in the military. It did not make them like the United States more. In fact, as I'm speaking, in August of 2019, U.S.-Iran relations are as bad as they've ever been. They did inch closer to improvement during the last presidential administration, but the current administration has basically walked all of that back. About a month and a half ago, there was even a bit of a kerfuffle, and people were wondering if the two countries were actually going to go to war for real this time. Thankfully, that didn't happen. But if you take the goals and the values of people like Ronald Reagan and Oliver North and Caspar Weinberger seriously— that they wanted to spread democracy. And you evaluate what happened based on their own goals and their own values. Yeah, what they did didn't work at all. What they did was an unmitigated failure. Central America and the Middle East and the surrounding region are not more democratic thanks to the actions of Oliver North and company.
But in another sense, Iran-Contra was a huge success. And this is what I want to devote the rest of the podcast to. We don't really talk about this. This hasn't left that much of a mark on history. Sure, I'm doing these episodes and, you know, nerds who don't like Ronald Reagan like to talk about it, but it's not Watergate. Heck, it doesn't even, like, have the prominence in the American political imagination that the Clinton scandal did when he had the whole Monica Lewinsky and an impeachment thing. And why not? Yeah, I want to look at why Iran-Contra was a failure as a policy, but kind of a success when it came to damage control. Later on, Iran-Contra also turned out to be, in a weird way, the best thing to ever happen to Oliver North. After he was found guilty and paid his debt to society, he decided to get back into it. In 1994, he ran for Senate in Virginia and was not successful. But after that, he became a pretty successful media personality. Since then, he's written, or more probably ghost-written, several books. He has appeared on a lot of TV shows, both as a host and a pundit, and sometimes an actor. He's appeared on military TV dramas like JAG, playing himself, and he's cashed checks as a consultant for military-themed video games. If you're a Call of Duty fan, you have heard his voice, North, playing himself in one level of that game. Now, there are a lot of Marine Corps officers in the world that could have provided expertise, insight, you know, consultation for history documentaries or military-themed video games, but because of Iran-Contra, North was the guy. He was the one that the Call of Duty folks decided to go to when they needed a real-life Marine person to be in their, you know, military game. And that's not all. He also has a conservative nonprofit called Freedom Alliance, which does something. And in 2018, he became the president of the National Rifle Association. And it turns out he was almost certainly embezzling money from the NRA. In some sense, I can't really blame him for that last one. If the National Rifle Association gave me a job, I too would probably embezzle from them and also probably steal a bunch of office supplies for personal use. But it seems, even three decades later, that North still had a knack for moving money around in a shifty manner. Ronald Reagan? His legacy's fine. I mean... We all know what happened during Iran-Contra and with a bunch of other stuff, but the kind of conventional wisdom and consensus about him is that he was, like, a good-to-okay president. He's got an aircraft carrier named after him. Even his former political opponents think of him in kind of a nice way. So, yeah, his legacy isn't going anywhere. So while the scheme was a failure, the subsequent damage control, and how Oliver North handled himself in those hearings— was a total success. But why? I mean, it's not like they actually did cover anything up. The information's all out there. If you want to find out about who did what and when and why, it's pretty easy to do. Everything's documented, and there were indictments. Oliver North was found guilty, but it still feels like justice wasn't served. Why is that? Well, 
the administration was able to successfully stonewall Congress and change the optics and framing of the issue. They were able to sow doubt and disinformation, especially when North was lashing out to Congress and saying that they were illegitimate. And I really want to emphasize that point. Successfully denying something isn't about proving your point. It's enough to just make the other party look bad. There's this great 2005 movie called Thank You for Smoking, where the protagonist, a sleazy operative for the tobacco industry, schools his son in the ways of public debate. And apparently I'm playing lots of audio clips for you this episode. So here's our protagonist, again, a sleazy lobbyist, teaching his son a thing or three about how to argue in public and how to argue for the public. Let's say that you're defending chocolate and I'm defending vanilla. Now, if I were to say to you, vanilla is the best flavor ice cream, you'd say... No, chocolate is. Exactly. But you can't win that argument. So, I'll ask you. So you think chocolate is the end-all and be-all of ice cream, do you? It's the best ice cream. I wouldn't order any of it. Oh, so it's all chocolate for you, is it? Yes, chocolate is all I need. Well, I need more than chocolate. And for that matter, I need more than vanilla. I believe that we need freedom and choice when it comes to our ice cream. And that, Joy Naylor, that is the definition of liberty. But that's not what we're talking about. Ah, but that's what I'm talking about. But you didn't prove that vanilla is the best. I didn't have to. I proved that you're wrong. And if you're wrong, I'm right. But you still didn't convince me. It's that I'm not after you. I'm after them. I love that clip. Because it's all about how... When you are arguing in public and in politics, you can deflect, obfuscate, and avoid accountability or even having to prove anything by appealing to people's values, by appealing to what people want to believe. That is extraordinarily politically effective. You don't actually have to prove your case. You just need to make people feel the right way. And you know who also knew this? Well, a guy called William Shakespeare. And this episode is already absurdly long and has had one pop culture reference, so here's another for you. We're going all in. This is a speech you might recognize from Julius Caesar, when Mark Antony is holding up Caesar's bloody, knife-ridden cloak to the Roman people. And while holding that cloak, he makes the onlookers forget about how Caesar destroyed so many political norms that they had until recently held dear. And he says to the crowd, quote, If you have tears, prepare to shed them now. You all do know this mantle. I remember the first time ever Caesar put it on. Twas on a summer's evening, in his tent. That day he overcame the Nervi. Look in this place ran Cassius's dagger through. See what a rent the envious Casca made. Through this the well-beloved Brutus stabbed, and as he plucked his cursed steel away, mark how the blood of Caesar followed it, as rushing out of doors to be resolved. If Brutus so unkindly knocked or no, for Brutus, as you know, was Caesar's angel. Judge, O you gods, how dearly Caesar loved him. This was the most unkindest cut of all. Unquote. That whole sequence at Caesar's funeral is amazing. It begins with the political consensus of the Roman people being pretty firmly anti-Caesar, 
That guy, after all, was a dictator who did the unthinkable and brought an army across Rubicon. He'd destroyed so much of what was normal in that society for his own glorification. Brutus and Cassius had facts on their sides. They knew who Caesar was. Mark Antony, though, is able to do the same thing Oliver North did. Activate values and emotions. Talk about how he's a great guy. Make him the victim of the story. Talk about how other people are the ones with the knives out. About how they are both the players and the umpire. And they already know how the game is going to go. Go on the offensive. Make yourself look right by making your opponents look wrong. Yes, supporting the Contras is illegal, but democracy. Yes, we sold weapons to Iran, but we wanted to free American hostages. Yes, we didn't tell Congress, but listen, we all want to promote democracy elsewhere, don't we? Facts aren't enough. Knowing things isn't enough. Having information out there isn't enough. People also need to care. You can't just educate the public. You have to activate the public. When it comes to politics, and when it comes to making something stick in the historical imagination, it is, unfortunately, not enough to just be right. Right.